Hello, and welcome to the Jeff Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane. I'm a registered nurse and the owner of MJD Legal Nurse Consulting. In the medical community, Just Culture refers to this idea that when errors occur, they should be examined closely and without judgment. It, to be honest, most errors, especially the larger ones, do not happen in a vacuum. So if we truly take a deep look at all the events leading up to an error and the factors at play, we can usually spot the weak link in the processes and hopefully prevent future errors from occurring. That's exactly what we'll be doing here in this podcast. Over the course of my career, I've reviewed hundreds of medical-related cases as a resource for attorneys across the country. I aim to use that experience, as well as my experience as a practicing registered nurse, to analyze medical-related cases, explore what went wrong, and perhaps learn what we can do in the future to save lives. Hello and welcome to the Just Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane Duquette. I am here to talk about the case of William George Davis versus the state of Texas. Uh, Before we begin, let's just give a quick introduction to uh, Mr. Davis. He was a registered nurse, uh, had a master's degree. He worked night shifts in the cardiac ICU. He worked at the Christus Trinity Mother Francis Hospital in Tyler, Texas. And this is where the incident, uh, multiple incidents had taken place. Uh, From what I could gather, he had worked prior to this for about five years without any mark on his license. He had a clean record. So before we get started... I want to give you a little kind of set the stage, if you will, just so you can kind of understand what um, what was kind of going on and what the setting was. So in a cardiac ICU, he is working with uh, patients who have just come out of open heart surgery. They're often in very critical condition. They require a lot of monitoring hourly if not sooner monitoring they're on a ton of cardiac drips uh, some drips to make their blood pressure stable some drips to make their heart not um, to beat normally there are other drips for different reasons sometimes they'll have an external pacemaker to keep their heart pacing the way that they need to be Um, They have several lines, so they might have some IVs, but they'll also have arterial lines, which are lines that go into an artery. Now, you can give medicine through this, but one thing that it's used for is to measure the the patient's pressures. Like, instead of blood pressure on the arm, it's a more accurate way to measure, and that way we know that the patients are getting enough, their blood pressure is enough to make sure that they're getting the oxygen and the nutrients to their brain and everything that they need. Um, The patients are usually sedated. They're not usually up and walking around, although I suppose they could be. But I'm thinking if, at least in the hospital I came from, if they can be up walking, they're no longer in the ICU and they they send them to a lower level of care. So these patients are, one, very sick. Two, they have lots of lines and drips. And three, they're often sedated and not really aware of what's going on. 
which also makes them extremely vulnerable for any kind of um, mistreatment or such as you'll see here. So what ended up happening was at this hospital, the Christus Trinity Mother Francis Hospital in Tyler, Texas, where Mr. Davis worked, at least seven victims or seven patients had massive stroke-like symptoms and it, after having the open heart surgery. Uh, many of them did survive, but they had, if they did survive, they had permanent damage and at least four victims had died. To understand kind of what happened, um, it's helpful to understand a stroke. So I know a lot of people have heard of a stroke and that is a, um, it can be either a blood clot in the brain a bleed in the brain, or in this case, it could be an air bubble in the brain called a called an air um, embolism. Um, depending on what the cause of the stroke is, the treatment is a lot different. Thinking about basically the way a stroke damages the brain um, and causes the effects is that something has happened and causes a decreased blood flow to an area of the brain and it depends on what area of the brain is affected as to what the patient's going to have so if it's in the area that affects your speech the patient's going to have a hard time speaking or understanding speech if it's a major stroke it, and it's on the right side of the brain which seems a little counterintuitive but they'll have left-sided weakness Opposite is true. If it's on the left side of the brain, it'll be right-sided weakness. You can have strokes that in the um, in your memory, strokes that affect your balance. It all depends on what area of the brain is damaged, which is what's going to happen going forward as far as symptoms go. Now, how the blood flow is stopped can be, like I said, one of those few causes. So it can be a clot, which is the most common cause, and in a cardiac patient who just had open heart surgery and actually in any patient who has surgery, their body is trying to heal actively. And so they're trying, their body's trying to heal and they've been cut. So they're a lot of the times they've been, you know, had an incision and their body's trying to heal and clot and heal that in that process. Unfortunately, you can develop clots. That's why, you know, we'll have patients come out of surgery with those venadines. So the things that are pumping on the um, calves will make, we tell patients to get up and move. Um, sometimes if that's not possible, we'll put them on blood thinners for a period of time. And that's to get them through this clotting process. And of course, if you have open heart surgery and your heart is the part that's healing, it is an increased risk. So you could have a clot and it could break off from your heart and it travels in the blood system. The blood travels really fast and it could, it's going to go wherever it's going to go. It could go, um, we could see it could travel down your body uh, into your feet and then have a hard time coming back up. And that's where you get like a DVT, which is a clot in the calf because it doesn't have enough momentum to get back up to the heart. You could have it in one of the blood vessels of the heart, which is what some of the heart attacks are caused by. You could have it in the lungs, which is a pulmonary embolism, where it actually prevents 
oxygen and blood flow to an area of the lungs. And depending on where that is, if it's major and it prevents all blood from flowing to the lungs, that's you could you could die from that. Um, and it could go to the brain and cause a stroke and any number of the symptoms, including death, that we talked about. Another way for a stroke is to have a brain bleed. Um, you can see these in, you know, like a burst aneurysm. It could also be from um, sometimes high blood pressure can cause these types of strokes where the pressure on the vessel is just so strong. It causes a tear, you know, ex any kind of extra um, in a weak vessel, any extra pressure in it could cause this. The symptoms are the same, but the treatment's a little bit different. So with a stroke, with a blood clot, the treatment would be to give heavy duty blood thinners. But if we gave blood thinners with the stroke, the bleeding stroke, then um, we could cause the patient to bleed even more. So it's important immediately when you suspect a stroke to get imaging so you can figure out quickly which stroke it is. Is it a clot? Can we fix it? Is it a, um, a bleed? You know, what, what, are, what is our steps here for this? And but in these patients, what happened, it wasn't a blood clot and it wasn't a brain bleed, which would be your typical stroke symptoms or causes. This was air, large, like a pretty large volume of air. I believe one of the experts said it was the most that they've ever heard of or have ever seen. So um, they called it a watershed stroke. A lot of these patients had, and that's just invulnerable they call them border zones in the brain um and it's really supplies it's where the three main arteries in the brain supply blood to the brain so these strokes were what they're saying here is that these strokes were very serious the air somehow got into the veins and it went straight up into the brain right into the main arteries and cut off circulation to a large portion of their brain which caused them to have um, pretty severe strokes and very severe um, if they survived the stroke, which, I mean, your brain kind of tells your body what to do, right? Especially like your uh, heartbeat, your um, breathing, eating, swallowing, being able to swallow your own saliva. You know, your brain really tells your body all of that kind of stuff. And when all of that's damaged, sometimes you can't come back from it. Um and so some of them died, but some of them lived. And if they did live, they had pretty devastating effects. That's part of what we monitor when patients are in the hospital, especially in the ICU. They're being monitored and checked for, we call them neuro checks. And essentially we're checking for stroke symptoms so that we can hopefully catch something early. And if it's a stroke with a blood clot, we could give them the blood thinners and then the damage is minimized. If it's a big brain bleed, that might take them to the OR to stop the bleed. Our goal is always to catch it early, treat it quickly, and then support them as they heal. Some symptoms do heal after a stroke. It's kind of like, kind of, I always tell patients to think of it as like a bruise. So if you got punched in the arm and you're going to have like the central area where you were punched is like a really dark bruise. And then there's like a, you know, as it goes out, in area you have like kind of lighter bruises and think of the sort of lighter bruised areas they might heal most of the way um, but you're still going to be stuck with that like part that 
really had the most impact. And that's going to be the part that um, that's really affected and has the long term. So it takes six months to a year to actually figure out what the symptoms are going to be from a stroke and what they're going to be left with for deficits. But um, yeah, so at this hospital, all they knew as they were going through his patients were having air embolism strokes and either dying or having really bad complications. And this is very unusual, like I said, because usually you would think it was going to be a blood clot or a, a bleed, uh, most likely the blood clot, though. And um, where it's the air, you have to wonder, you know, how did air get in there, right? There's not, we, as a nurse, we're taught, like, you never want to put air in anybody's body ever. Um, you never want to do it, whether you're giving, say, your flu shot in the muscle or... Um, you're giving an IV. We're taught when you have your, um, when you're giving a bag of fluid and you have the tubing, you have to prime that tubing because the air in that tubing, we can't let that in the body. It will kill someone. You know, even down to, you know, you get a little anxious when you have like a teeny, teeny, tiny air bubble, which usually won't do anything. You need like kind of the whole set of tubing to really do damage, but you know, you still try to even get rid of that little teeny, tiny air bubble. And, just to think like, how did this, how, how did this happen? And how is it happening in multiple times? So the victims, um, there's a few here. I got, I found his, um, William Davis's warrant and there's some John Doe's on here. Um, so I'm going to read you off these people. And then I have some named victims that I found in newspaper clippings. And so I'm assuming that the ones that don't fit in are, um, the John Doe's of some sort, but I'm not entirely sure. I do know that they found at least seven victims. Um, so I'm going to kind of go through each one and then kind of tell you how this case played out. So on June 22nd, 2017, um, unnamed patient, 61 year old male was in the hospital after open heart surgery. It doesn't say what type of surgery, but sometime in the middle of the night, they said around 0300 hours, they had a code. So we would call um, anytime that we would suspect a stroke, we would call a code stroke specifically because that gets you different people. That will get you a neurologist. That'll get you um, priority to the CT scanner. That will get you the pharmacist available to give you those blood thinners if you need them. And you're really getting very specific stroke trained people to the bedside quickly because we have a very short period of time before we can reverse a blood clot stroke. So we want those people to be there right away. We don't want to, we don't want to wait for someone to get in, in a couple hours. Like we want to get them in as soon as possible. Um, so that patient, and then again in July, July 14th, another patient was a 58 year old male died, um, had his code at, 4:37 in the morning so this would have been night shift um in case you don't know shifts in the hospital from 7 to 7 30 so it's 7 a.m to 7 30 p.m or 7 7 p.m to 7 30 a.m that overlap is what we use for report so at 7 a.m we start report and then the 7 to 7 30 is kind of when we're handing off our patients and then we go home if we're done report at 7 30 otherwise we go home when we are done um, patient and, and then in, so in June we had one in July, we had one. And then in August 4th, 
a patient by the name of Christopher Greenaway. He was 47. He was actually a pilot and a decorated veteran. He had his surgery on August 3rd, 2017. He was in recovery. It was said that he was actually recovering really well. He talked to, um, you know, he, he was just doing really well. No complications. Everything was going as expected. And then on sometime overnight on August 4th, his nurse, the nurse's name was Ben Raspberry, asked Mr. Davis to watch this patient while he went to lunch, which is something that we do. We can do, um, you know, if a nurse is going to go take a lunch break because we work 12 and a half, 13, 14 hours, we need legally we need to have a lunch break and um, we need to eat for our, you know, physiologically. So um, so Ben went for a lunch break. Davis was covering. And when he returned from his lunch break, the patient Mr. Greenaway was coding. He was like, he, he said in his um, testimony, he was like I, I, like, I asked what happened. He was doing perfectly fine before I left. Everything was going well. And then I come back and he's coding. And um, this patient, unfortunately, died a few days later as effects from the stroke. Um, but no real, I, I mean, they would have done the CT immediately on all of these patients. So at, up to this point, they would have seen the air embolism in the brain. But they're probably like still trying to figure out how it happened. It happens once you're wondering, did it happen during surgery? You know, you have to look at a lot of things. You have to look at the OR procedures. Did somehow air get in when they were in the operating room and the patient was open? Did air somehow get into the um, into the bloodstream? We see that happen sometimes. Um, you can see that in, in like a unrelated, but like mother baby, you can see amniotic fluid get in and it has this kind of the same effect. You know, they have to look at the operating room. They have to look at every step of the way. And it, these things do take time. And when you have no clues, Right. So none of these patients would have been able to say, you know, well, William came in and fiddled with something and, you know, here we go. Now we're now I'm having a stroke. And these patients weren't able, they were one sedated, so they probably didn't even see anything happening. And two, their deficits were so bad that they couldn't verbalize what was happening. So we have June 22nd, July 14th, August 4th. And then on August 7th, there was another patient, unnamed, 54-year-old male, um, a diet, had his code around 11 o'clock p.m. or 2,300 hours. Um, and then nothing until October 17th, another unknown patient, 56-year-old male, died in the kind of wee hours of the morning, 4.14, which would, again, still be night shift. And then in November, November 30th, 2017, a patient by the name of Pamela Henderson was recovering from a heart valve replacement surgery in the same hospital. So she was in the ICU, same place. She actually did survive this, and uh, but she has some deficits going forward. She has, um, she has some left-sided weakness. She has difficulty walking, difficulty with balance. She has to use a walker when she walks now, um, and she's actually lost um, her vision. It, it didn't say if she was blind or just had decreased vision or lost it in one eye or the other. All I got was that she lost her vision. But if she's walking independently with a walker, I 
should hope she would um, be able to see a little bit. Um, but I don't know all the details on that. Either way, it's still unfortunate. And she was relatively healthy prior to this, aside from her heart valve issues. Um, but now she has to live in an assisted living facility for the rest of her life. The only thing that she testified to was that she remembered hearing voices when she woke up from surgery, but she said that she couldn't move. She couldn't move her body. And that can happen sometimes with a stroke. You, like I said, it just depends on where. So it could have been in the part that affected her motor and her ability to move, or it could have been the medicine that she was on. Sometimes when you're sedated, we give you sedative medicines, but there can also be paralytic medicines. So if the sedative wears off, but not the paralytic, then you're awake, but you can't move because you're paralyzed um, by medicine. So unsure if that was related to the stroke or not, but that was all that she remembered about the whole entire incident. And now, unfortunately, her whole entire life from here on out is affected. Um, and then, interestingly enough, there's no other patients, no other incidences until January 25th of 2018. This is sort of the one that got healthcare administrators kind of really thinking. Um, this was a patient by the name of Joseph Kalina. He was 58 years old. Uh, the nurse that was taking care of him asked David, um, you know, he found he found Davis in the room and asked, you know, what what are you doing in, in my patient's room sometime in the middle of the night? And he said that there was an alarm that was going off on the patient's IV pump that said air. Um, I think it said like um, there was air, you know, from um, in the line and he was he was in there to to fix it. Um, later testimony from other nurse nurses on the unit said that they did not hear an IV pump beeping. Um, so that kind of was proved untruthful as to why he was in the room. But shortly after um, he left the room, the patient began to code. And that's when that nurse, you know, saw him and said, what happened? Like, you have to find out what happened, right? And in that patient, what it showed was that the arterial line, remember I told you they had those lines directly into the arteries that monitors, you know, blood pressure and a lot of different, gives us a lot of uh, measuring measurements, like, like I said, like blood pressure, arterial pressures. And that line was showed to be manipulated and that it had been tampered with, which is interesting. And when they asked William about this, he said that he admitted to flushing the arterial line several times because there were some complications with it. This patient, Joseph Kalinas, had brain damage and severe deficits, but he didn't die right away. Um, he actually lived with his deficits for two years and later died of complications. You know, I've seen this before. You have a stroke and then, you know, they're, they can't move. They're kind of stuck in bed. They can't eat because having a stroke affects, like I said, your ability to swallow and so they would have a feeding tube and sometimes patients can't monitor their own secretions. Sometimes patients have to have a, um, a trach, which is like a, like a breathing tube. It, it can be 
a lot and patients who have really severe strokes, they um, sometimes they pass. And this patient died about two years after. But what was interesting was that prior to this incident, he was it was really sad because he was recovering really well from surgery um, until that one night where he had the stroke really suddenly. Um, there's a few other patients that I'm assuming fit into these John Doe's because I didn't really find anything, um, the timeline on these ones. But there's a, a John Lafferty who was 74. He had a, a stroke and died in 2017. Ronald Clark was 68. He had the same kind of stroke in seven, 2017 and died. Um, Jesus Serrano in October of 2017 had heart surgery at this Trinity Hospital. He was feeling really well after surgery. In fact, that day he spoke to his daughter and she said that he was sounded like his normal self and like everything was going great. But that night he ended up going into a coma and having a stroke and he never fully recovered, but he did survive. Uh, during the trial, his daughter testified that, you know, when she goes to see his, her father, he's, he's not her father at all. He's lost his memory. He doesn't know who she is any longer. Um, it's just really unfortunate. It's just really, really unfortunate. So like I said, after this January 25th, 2018 patient, they actually started thinking that they had some criminal activity on their hands. And it was on February 8th, 2018, that the hospital notified authorities of some possible criminal activity and asked for their assistance to review what was going on and see if there was a crime actually happening. They did, um, they looked at the security footage in the hospital because they wanted to know who had access to these patients. Like, yeah, there was a nurse taking care of each patient, but there's no way multiple nurses are injecting air into patients. Because like I told you, we are all trained not to do that. We are all trained that air into especially an artery is death. Um, so we would never knowingly do that. In fact, we go out of our way to make sure that there is no air and there's measures that we take to be sure that there is no air in these lines, including safety protocols where these IV pumps will actually beep if there is air. So say a bag runs low, it will, um, it'll detect air before it gets on the patient side. So there's like the bag to the pump and then the pump to the patient. So if it won't let air even through the pump to get to the patient side of the line. And so there's a lot of measures and a lot of things we're taking care of. So ruling it out that there is no way that all of these patients, nurses accidentally injected them with air to cause these air embolism strokes. And what is the likelihood that multiple different nurses would have intentionally done that, right? So they started looking at the staffing and they noticed that William Davis was the nurse on duty throughout all of these patients incidences. So every single time a patient had these types of strokes, he was working. He was not always assigned to these patients as their nurse. So in the medical record, there would be no, 
if you were just looking at the medical records, you wouldn't have seen him listed anywhere. So there would have been no, nothing would have alerted you to look into him. But when they looked at the security footage, they noticed that in each of these incidences, on each of these occasions, he would walk into the patient's room, be in there for about a minute, a minute and a half, and then walk back out. And then within minutes, that patient was coding, probably as he's walking out the door, but it took a minute for, you know, the, these patients are all actively monitored. So if their heart stopped beating, if their blood pressure was high, if their heart rate was high, which would always happen in these cases, then um, these mon their monitors would alert someone to an issue and people would come running to find out what was going on. Most of the time you hope it's just a kinked wire or something, but in these cases it was real. So that was interesting that he was on the footage. And so they began an investigation into him um, and had their experts looking at all of the, like I said, every one of these patients would have had a CT scan. That is the standard of care. That's the, um, should be in, you know, if you're a stroke hospital, that's your protocol, get a CT right away as fast as you can. So you can find out what's going on. So they looked at them and, Dr. Layton was the diagnostic neuroradiologist, and he reviewed all of these brain scans and said he had never seen such a massive amount of air in the arteries of a brain that all of these patients had. It was it was a lot of air. So I don't know exactly how much. I didn't get any sort of measurements at all, but it would have had to have been, you know, quite a bit. Um, I'm assuming he would have used like a syringe. And the fact that he said that he flushed the arterial line several times. So what that would mean for sort of anyone else is that they would flush it with like normal saline or something. You know, if your line is, you think it's clotted or something's wrong with it, you could flush it. But um, if he's flushing it several times with air and getting air into the blood that way, that would be a, a lot. Even just like one small syringe full could be enough. So um, his nursing license was suspended by the board of nursing because they're always involved in these types of things and they'll take the nursing license away. They continued on their investigation and they interviewed him. So one of the detectives said that he was, when they were asking questions about what happened to these patients, he said that, um, Dr. Uh, Detective Jeffrey, Jeff Roberts said that he, um, Davis was indirect and deflective when he was asked questions about what happened to these patients. He had about a three hour interview after the last patient, Kalina's um, embolism was found. After that interview, they suspected that he was the one who injected air into these patients, essentially causing the death of four people and injured um, another three at least and they issued a warrant issued a warrant for his arrest on April 10th 2018 and he ended up going to trial in September um, on September 28th 2021 the trial had about 10 days of testimony and in this trial so um, during actually during the time that the trial was going on, I heard from a few sources that they recorded the prison telephone conversations and his wife had asked him why he did this to people and his excuse was that he wanted to get overtime. So he wanted these patients to have complications 
so they would stay in the hospital longer so that he could work more hours and work more days in a row. Which, as a nurse, it's so hard for me to understand. Um, that can't be right because even before COVID, long before COVID, for the history of all of nursing, I think, we've been short-staffed. And I remember in 2015 when I was working as a nurse, they were giving out, they always asked for overtime. If you're like, hey, you want me to come into work tomorrow? And they're like, heck yeah. And they wouldn't even just pay you time and a half. They were so desperate for people to come in. They would pay you time and a half and give you a couple hundred dollars bonus just for showing up and being willing to work extra. So it's really hard for me to understand that he had to go out of his way to create overtime. And when they had fellow nurses on the unit testify, you know, were you guys able to get overtime? And they said that there was no reason why he would have had to do this because they were understaffed and they were um, always open for people to pick up overtime. And so that isn't why he did it. I don't know why he did it. We never know why people do criminal acts. Uh, in some of my work with, you know, criminal defense, sometimes it's they've had a really traumatic past and somebody's hurt them and it's given them a predisposition to hurt other people. Um, it could be he's had his own, you know, brain injury or you just never know what someone's history is and what makes them the way that they are and to do the things they did. But it definitely wasn't just to make people sicker so that he could have more overtime. Um, of course, the defense, their theory was that um, he, of course, said, you know, he wasn't guilty. He didn't do it. His actual defense for the trial was that he cared a lot about his patients and their health care and their safety. And Dr. William Turner, um, I, I don't, I, I'm assuming he might have been the surgeon, was the one to blame for these complications and that. Mr. Davis was just the scapegoat because he was the nurse. So they're essentially saying that the hospital was covering for an incompetent doctor who was the one who let the air into the bloodstream and they just blamed this patient, which I mean, you could, you would want to look into that because uh, as we've seen and as we will see in other cases that I'm going to cover, the hospitals do cover up things sometimes. But, I mean, you just can't get past the fact that the patients are doing fine. They're healing well days after surgery. And then he walks into the room on camera, is in for about a minute, walks out, and then the patient codes and dies. That's really hard to get over. That's really hard to explain. And it's consistent with each one of these victims. So, I mean, they really don't have a leg to stand on, in my opinion, on the scapegoat theory. Uh, and the jury agreed. It took them just an hour and they convicted him of capital murder. As far as I could find online, it's still in the appeal process. So we'll see how it ends up if he actually does get the death penalty and if it upholds. But yeah, that's the case of William Davis versus the state of Texas. It's just really unfortunate when people hurt other people and it really... I feel like it just really hurts when it's a nurse because when you think of a nurse, you think of somebody who is caring, loving, compassionate, would put somebody else's needs for their own 
and often do, and that is 98% of the nurses, and then you get just one, right? And this is a master's degree trained nurse. So it's not like the last case where it was a licensed practical nurse where they went to school for less than a year and could work. This is someone who spent years studying and it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy to become a nurse, especially a registered nurse, especially go through a master's program. It is like, it's like boot camp. I remember crying so much during school. I remember questioning my life. I remember wondering why I wasn't planning to open a donut shop and why was I going, putting myself through this? And I don't know. I don't know if you would go through all that trouble just to murder people. Um, so like I said, I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure why he did what he did. Um, I definitely don't think it was a scapegoat. I do think it's worth noting that it took seven victims for the hospital to call in the authorities and kind of see what was going on. I could, but I mean, it's over, what is it, like a six, six month time frame, six, seven month time frame. They're probably investigating slowly, it looks like. Um, but like I said, they had a lot to investigate. They had to start from scratch, right? So was it in the pre-op process? Was it in the OR? Was there some a system that was wrong in the OR that caused this? Was it to do with the pumps? Were the pumps off? Was it because, you know, you didn't know where the air was going into the patient. They didn't know. They had to look at a lot of different things. And, of course, the last thing you want to think of is that one of your own is deliberately doing this to people to kill them. Uh, but that's what ended up happening here. So uh, if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting this podcast and this work. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and go ahead and give us a review on um, Apple or Spotify. That would be really helpful. And until next time, I'll see you next week.